You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We are joined today by Clinton Emerson, the founder and managing partner of Escape the Wolf, a security consulting firm that bridges the gap between crisis and the unknown with crisis management policy and award-winning workforce education campaigns. He's also the inventor of Zero Trace products, which are designed to protect cell phones, laptops, and other digital assets from identity theft and tracking. Prior to this, Clint spent a 20-year career within the United States Navy, where he was a member of SEAL Team 3 and the United States Naval Special Warfare Development Group, which, if you don't know what I'm talking about, might sound pretty innocuous and pedestrian, until you realize that it is the official name for SEAL Team 6. Also during his time as a SEAL, he was temporarily tasked with duty with the National Security Agency. He is also an author. He has written several articles on security for Fox Business. In two books, first, Escape the Wolf, a security handbook for traveling professionals, which came out in 2009. In his latest book, 100 Deadly Skills, the SEAL Operative's Guide to Eluding Pursuers, Evading Capture, and Surviving Any Dangerous Situation, which just came out in October of this year. Thank you, Clint, for taking the time to talk to us here at the International Spy Museum. Hey, thank you for having me. So, a little bit about yourself first. You, you joined the Navy in 1994. Um, what drew you to the Navy in the first place? Did you always want to be a SEAL, or do you want to be a boat captain somewhere? No, I was always a SEAL. Um, probably when I was 10 years old, I was traveling through Europe with my family. I grew up overseas, Saudi Arabia specifically, and... Uh, and I was probably 10 years old, hanging out at the Frankfurt airport, and there was a guy at the bar that had some cool tattoos. And I, uh, I was like, hey, what's that tattoo? And he said, well, it's a trident. And I said, well, what, what's a trident? And he said, well, it's a symbol that represents, uh, you know, the Navy SEALs. And so I went on to ask him more questions. He told me enough cool stories to where I was sold. And at that point in my life, I wanted to always be a ninja. Um, so I switched from Ninja to Navy SEAL. It's not a big switch. I mean, there, there's some similarities there. <laughs> well, the difference is, is if you kill someone as a Ninja, it's called murder. If you <laughs> kill someone as a SEAL, then you're like a hero. Right. Yeah. You get medals for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> and, and I'm sure you get this question a lot because there is a lore surrounding the Navy SEALs. Uh, is BUDS, which is the school that SEALs go to, as insanely difficult as it's portrayed in media, uh, is it a psychological test more than a physical test? Is it both? We see it in movies. You see it in documentaries. Is it as bad as it looks? I think, uh, yeah. I mean, it's as bad as it looks, but when you're in it, um, it is a, a solid combination between testing your physical limits along with your mental 
but if I had to weigh out which one was more of the asset in order to get through it, it's mental. I mean, at the end of the day, um, it's the obstacles that they put in front of you, the tests that you're being given every day. Um, it's the pounding that you're getting that it's your mind that will uh, give up far, far faster than your body. So you don't tend to have a lot of fat out of shape guys trying out to be SEALs. I mean, everybody basically is relatively fit. Well, guys that show up, you know, it depends on what their what duty they had prior to showing up. Um, but yeah, they better be in good shape. Um, and the first phase of, of BUDS is all about dropping the hammer on everybody and equalizing the field so they just break you mm -hmm. and then want to build you all back up. And it, and it works. It's effective. And what it produces, and again, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it, what it seems to produce is an incredibly tight-knit group of people who make it through BUDS and become SEALs in the community uh, that... Um, that's, you know, is, is small uh, because you're elite soldiers, but at the same time, you've all gone through some of the same experiences. And, and, and you know, or at least knew, uh, many of the people who have become famous as SEALs. I mean, you, you weren't, the, the SEALs themselves aren't intended to be an organization that makes famous people. But in the last decade or so, there have been a couple yeah. famous people who have come out of the SEALs, like Chris Kyle, who the movie American Sniper was made about. Uh, you certainly have people like Marcus Luttrell, who the Lone Survivor movie was made yeah, about. Of course. But since, you know, it, it's almost a joke when people, and I say I've been in the Army, like, oh, do you know this guy? I'm like, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of us. But, the, you <laughs> yeah. know, the SEALs and Delta and, and Special Forces, they're such a small community. Uh, can you talk a little bit about kind of the tight-knit uh, Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, um, you know, you're talking uh, the smallest component of the Special Operations Command is the SEAL community. And, uh, and my, my opinion is biased, but we are probably the most versatile, you know, um, more experienced at this point, operators in the field. Um, and over time, because it's so small, you do get to know everyone. Chris was at SEAL Team 3 with me. Uh, we pushed into Iraq together. Um, he was a great guy, bigger than life, good old Texas boy um, that really didn't back down to anything you know, as we've uh, seen in the press uh, over and over again as it relates to, you know, someone like Jesse Ventura. Mm -hmm. um, but Chris is a, uh, was, a, was a great guy, and, you know, it's too bad what happened to him. And then also, you know, um, a different kind of fame. You have Glenn Doherty and Ty Woods. Um, Glenn Doherty, one of my best friends, also, you know, has become infamous because he was part of the Benghazi attack. And uh, once again, another great guy. So, you know, both both of them ending with this, with crazy tragedy, but um, both great guys, great operators, and I could go on and tell you stories right. about each. But that's how tight it is. You get right. to know each other, and when someone dies in the news, I we probably worked together, or I've known them at some point in the career. Well, and it's for the Benghazi operation, and certainly there's going to be a, a Hollywood treatment of that coming out in the future. So it'll be interesting that's to see how yeah. real to form. Yes, that is. It's it's Michael Bay, so who knows? But. Uh, it'd be interesting to see how, how close to reality they keep that. Something I find interesting about you is I've talked to other uh, members or former members of the, of the special operations community, and many of them came in after 9-11, but your career spans both before and after 9-11. So I want to ask you, how dramatically different, or is it different, is the special operations community, and I'm including everybody in this case, but you can talk certainly about SEALs, now versus what it was before? I think it has... Uh there was a huge par a paradigm shift, um, especially as it relates to intelligence uh, um, for 
all agencies and DOD departments when 9-11 happened. From that point on, um, you know, the fusion of everything uh, came together. Uh, all the different ints decided, okay, let's start talking to each other. Whereas before, everyone stayed uh, compartmentalized and in their own little stovepiped area, um, protecting their own ground, rightfully so. And when you're not in war, um, you know, there's other things that are more important. And so the communication piece just wasn't there. But when it's time to go to war, uh, everyone decided to start communicating and, you know, realizing that how important that was to share information and have actionable, accurate information and intelligence to action out there in the field. Um, and then once we started getting wins, of course, that's, that's, that's the success you're looking for. And you've really alluded to my, my follow-up question to that, and, and I think that many, perhaps, of our, our listeners right now are going, you're an intelligence museum, this is a spy cast, what are you doing talking to a SEAL? Uh, and, and I think we need to disabuse people of the notion that, you know, you are guys who kick down doors and are grunts, knuckle-draggers. Um, so why do I have a SEAL on intelligence podcast? Can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, there, there's a, a quip that, that SEALs and, or other special ops guys are just spies with flippers. Uh, can you talk a little bit how your role or, or the role of SEALs at large, and you don't have to necessarily go into your specific experiences because I know you can't, uh, how you cross over to the intelligence world in a general sense? I think at a general level, when you talk about um, military, you know, Title 10 and Title 50, uh, which, you know, Title 50 being national level intelligence, Title 10 being uh, tactical level, if you will, or DOD, um, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a place where that has to intersect and people have to communicate. Um, and so every country we go to, there's, uh, there's, there's offsites and embassies and, you know, all these terms for places where, um, you know, intelligence is hanging out and it's important for, this was all decided long before me, but it was important for special operations and intelligence to um, get really tight so that they could be more effective because both of them rely on one another. And I think that's the, that was the big piece there mm -hmm. that was missing. So now um, it's not unusual for, you know, SEALs to be part of uh, intelligence briefings, just like uh, it's not, it's, it's, uh, it's just as important for intelligence officers to be part of the tactical briefings of what's happening on the ground, what's being collected on right. the ground. Well, I mean, that was going to be my next question <clears throat> there is you also had the militarization of intelligence, yeah. you know, where you have, uh, SEALs or other special operations uh, team members working side by side with, you know, CIA officers decked out in battle rattle from head to toe, actually acting as, you know, military forces in their own right. Uh, mm -hmm. Certainly the Tora Bora, where we almost got bin Laden the first time, or it was basically half special ops guys, half CIA guys. And of course, when SEAL Team 6 went in, and this is the only time I'm going to bring up bin Laden, the only time so when SEAL Team 6 went in to get bin Laden, uh, because they went into Pakistan, they had to be temporarily assigned to the CIA, and in, in, you know, because of of entering the, the other. Is that true? Uh, it's true. Know. Yeah. I don't know anything yeah. About so, that. yeah, because we would have been actually invading another hmm. country in that That's case. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So you can't say it. I can, which is great. Um, <laughs> I have no idea yeah. what you're talking about. <laughs> so I think one of one of the great things that we can potentially talk about that that highlights this confluence of intelligence agencies and the special operations community is your posting to NSA. And again, I'm sure you can only say so much. Uh, but can you talk a little bit about why 
you would have someone in like yourself with your background in the teams being uh, tasked to the NSA. Yeah, I mean, in its simplest form, you need liaisons uh, from DOD within intelligence agencies and vice versa. Um, so it makes communication far better. It uh, keeps situational awareness uh, at its highest. And it's always good to have, um, you know, each component's representation at each other's headquarters. And uh, though the time I was there, I wore many hats. Um, but most of it was really uh, liaison between uh, Naval Special Warfare and the NSA. And this has uh, become common across the board now so that, once again, that the power of intelligence and when it's shared, how effective you can really, how well, more effective you can become. Well, and you, you said the word more effective and you talk about uh, this was attempt at a solution to the problems we faced before 9-11 and what Correct. brought on 9-11. Without coming down on one side or the other, has it gotten better? Uh, in my experience, yes. I think uh, the, the, in, the sharing um, and the intelligence that's brought down is, uh, you know, hell, the power of technology is beautiful, right? I mean, you can get, you can get all kinds of information from all kinds of uh, sources and uh, bring it all together and then action it really quickly now. And that's, uh, that's, the, that's the advantage we have off uh, over over our, advet, our uh, adversaries. So there, we've talked about there is some popular culture surrounding SEAL Team 6, and, and the SEALs are already considered an elite force. And as an ex-Army guy, you know, Delta, uh, we can debate back and forth, but we won't about Delta versus the SEALs. Um, but even though the SEALs are elite, what, what makes SEAL Team 6 stand out? Like what, because it's relatively maybe un misunderstood because it has been just so recently declassified, even though uh, there have been books and, and other movies and stuff about it. But what, what is SEAL Team 6 and why are they separate from SEAL Team 3 or 5 or anybody else? Um, well, they, they represent best in class. Uh, the beauty of, of SEAL Team 6 is uh, it's pulling the best of the most experienced seasoned guys uh, into that unit. Um, unlike other national level units that kind of draw from everywhere and they screen, they tend to still get the same kind of guys because um, that's what the screening and selection is for. Mm -hmm. um, but the that particular command has the ability to dip into you know an elite unit and pull the best out of there. And they say that the the command has point the top point zero 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 one percent of the United <laughs> States military inside its fence line, and I believe it. What, as much as you can say, what what was your role? On the teams, what what specifically were you doing? And, and I'm alluding to uh, kind of your background and what we call technical operations. Or uh, you can be a little specific or very vague on this. But if you can talk a little bit about what your background is when it comes to your role on the teams. Um, yeah, I, I I had a knack for uh, you know anything techy. I kind of liked it, um, and so uh, probably midway through the career. Um, I started, as, as Naval Special Warfare started to become more technologically advanced, I found myself kind of in the middle of that and, um, and got to uh, be involved on more of the tech side um, for the duration. And uh, it's all on how you define technology. Right. So uh, that I'll uh, leave for the crowd. But um, 
we've learned to become more efficient. We've learned to embrace technology. It's not a bunch of uh, ground pounders anymore that just shoot bullets straight. Mm -hmm. We can shoot bullets straight and we can leverage technology in order to uh, ensure 100% success every time because most of the missions are zero failure. Right. Um, so uh, we've learned to uh, leverage whatever we can in order to win. Let me move on to talking about your book. And again, it's 100 Deadly Skills, The SEAL Operative's Guide to Eluding Pursuers, Evading Capture, and Surviving Any Dangerous Situation. So what led you to write a book like this? Like what, I always ask that question to authors. Uh -huh. what, what, what is the inspiration behind this book? Um, bad guys. I mean, okay. I, think, uh, I think this book breaks down a lot of tactics bad guys use every day and gives the reader the ability to you know, take those tactics and use it against the bad guys. Um, it has uh, a little bit of cyber, it has a little bit of uh, active shooter, it has a little bit of all the uh, skills you need to um, successfully win uh, today's threats. So the second question I always ask authors about their sources. Is the source of this book your personal experience? Have you brought it from other operators that you've talked to? Is this just based on your training? Um, a majority of this is, uh, yeah, it's most personal experience, I would say. Um, the beauty of the community is it's not that they teach you everything you need to know. It's that they, they give you the freedom to be creative and adapt whatever you need to in order to uh, ensure success. So um, I wasn't taught really anything in that book. It was all stuff that you come up with in the field in order to get the job done. Some of it is just stuff that... I think is important for today's world as it relates to active shooters and uh, cyber issues that I may not have necessarily used, but mm -hmm. um, it is skills that the bad guys use that you should know about. Right. And, and someone picking this up off a, of a shelf may flip through this and see sections that they might never use, you know, uh, disposing of a body, getting past a guard dog, <laughs> building a silencer from a water bottle. That's one's great. And my personal favorite, stealing a plane, which I've already kind of heckled you from afar for the last couple hours. But even beyond that, there's loads of practical information in this book. That, without I mean, a doubt. Without a doubt. I mean, basic escape tools, things like hotel security, uh, active shooter, like you've already mentioned, uh, and some of the counter-surveillance skills, I think, are, are something that people can use on a day-to-day -day basis. And I, I'm sounding like a commercial a little bit, but um, I, I honestly think that there are things in here, even the idea of – you see in the movies all the time that guys get in a situation and they're they're – hiding behind a couch or somewhere and it's just you know, you talk about the idea of pulling a, a bible or a quran out of the at a hotel uh, end table and that that provides you with some ballistic protection things like that, that you might not be thinking about when you're put in a situation uh and and of course no one should be constantly worried every second and nervous about someone shooting them the next minute or a terrorist taking over but the idea and this is something we learn in the military and i'm sure in your 20-year career especially in the teams that was ingrained into you that you don't have time to think a whole lot when something goes down. And if you're starting to think about it now versus when the guy starts shooting or when something happens, uh, that's really what the, the benefit of something like this, this kind of book. Well, yes, exactly. You nailed it on the head. It's better uh, to have your decisions made outside the lines of crisis so that when crisis strikes, all you do is act out those decisions. Um, and so the only way that you can improvise and be creative in your environment under stress is if you've already kind of plugged into the matrix, if you will, and uploaded some good knowledge. Um, and then that knowledge will kick in um, 
hopefully when the time is right, you know, when crisis strikes, you've got a little bit of knowledge, you've done a little bit of preparation, and uh, and you can follow that. You can follow a, a saying I always say, you know, life's a competition. You know, if you're winning, you're living. If you're losing, you're dying. So the goal is to win, you know, and to live. And so a lot of the skills in the book give you just that. Well, and when I was flipping through it and eventually when I read it from cover to cover, um, I was happy to see that uh, because I, I anticipate criticism. That's kind of as a historian. That's my job. Um, and, and, and something this book could potentially be open for that I was happy that you got rid of right away, and I'll talk about that in a second, is the idea like, well, average everyday persons should not be standing up to an active shooter. An average everyday person should not be thinking about how to uh, you know, fight their way through a bad situation. But you right off the bat say, look, your number one option in all these scenarios is what? Is the runaway, is mm-hmm. to get the hell out of Dodge. Exactly. You're not telling people, hey, if someone's shooting, go attack the guy. No. Uh, and that, that to me, uh, I was happy to see that because there, there, are, uh, there are books like this that try to train armchair you know, counter- counterterrorism <laughs> experts yeah. uh, and they put themselves people in bad situations. And it, it very, this is not that book. Uh, yeah. And, and I'm, again, not trying to sound like an advertisement for anyone thinking that, you know, I'm not going to buy my 14-year-old boy this book. Uh, the first thing they're told is get out of the situation as quickly as you can. Yeah, there is a mental checklist that everyone should follow that's stressed is that uh, it's run, hide, fight. You know, so um, if you can run, you should. And you should run in a zigzag pattern because it's far harder for someone like me to shoot you in the back if you're zigzagging back and forth down the hallway and increasing distance from the threat inevitably increases survivability. But if you can't run and you can and, and you can only hide, well then hide behind something that stops bullets. You know, on the engine block of your car, not the trunk. The trunk is hollow. If it's a if there's a cinder block wall, get behind that. And if you can't hide, well then yeah, the last resort is to fight and fight with extreme aggression because uh, that's what it takes these days uh, in order to live. And yes, you might get stabbed in the shoulder, you might get shot in the leg, but that is far better than dying. You talked about hiding. I, I remember one of the first things that uh, many in my basic training unit had to understand the hard way was there's a significant difference between cover and concealment. And people who, I'm invisible, mm-hmm. invisible behind a bush that doesn't tend to stop bullets particularly well. Or a curtain. Uh, yeah, yeah, or a curtain, right. Yeah. Uh, or a plush couch uh, <laughs> yeah. in situations. Yeah, those are uh, hollow. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask you about a concept that you have in this book from the very beginning, the concept of the violent nomad. Can you explain a little bit about what that is? Yeah, the violent nomad, um, one, I just thought was kind of a cool code name if I were to put together uh, you know, um, a course called 100 Deadly Skills. But... Um, the reality is, is what the violent nomad is something I think that, uh, is inside of all of us. It is the, that it's the will to live. It's the will to fight that is there. And even if you're alone, um, it can be drawn out and some people don't think they have it, but the reality is they do. And the violent nomad is in every single one of us. Um, when evil strikes, that's what you kind of have to reach to in order to win. I think one of, one of the positive things and great things about this book is the idea that, look, you can't take guns and shiny gadgets like we have here in this museum on planes. You're not going to get through TSA. We're in Washington, D.C. You can't conceal carry. You can barely have a gun in Washington, D.C. You know, but good operatives can improvise. You can find things in your environment 
to work with to help you mm-hmm. survive certain situations, to, to help you stay under the radar, to help you be invisible. And I think that's one of the benefits of this book, that it's not trying to train you how to use a military-grade suppressor on a weapon. It's training you how to take a 20-ounce bottle and your, your environment and your surroundings and mm-hmm. use them to your advantage. Yes, without a doubt. One thing I've been pushing recently is, uh, you know, a pen, how effective that pen can be uh, and improvise into a weapon. And, uh, you know, like you said, I'm not a commercial for Zebra, but the Zebra pen that you can buy at any big box, you know, uh, office supply store is a couple of bucks. It's a steel barrel pen, and uh, you can do an overhand grip, an underhand grip, and it leaves about three inches of uh, a steel spike, basically, that can be uh, gouge out eyeballs or stick in a rib. But the goal is, is take something in your environment and use it to create pain for the bad guy so that you can then get away. Well, Clint, thank you for joining us. Clint Emerson is a founding and managing partner of Escape the Wolf. He is also the inventor of Zero Trace Products. And he is an author, and you can see his articles on Fox Business and his books, Escape the Wolf, a security handbook for traveling professionals, and his newest book, 100 Deadly Skills, The SEAL Operative's Guide to Eluding Pursuers, Evading Capture, and Surviving Any Dangerous Situation. Thank you, Clint, for being here. Thanks for having me. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month.